0: Hey, good morning and welcome. Um, if you're with us for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Danny. I have the privilege of serving here as the pastor of Bridge and um, I'm happy to be here this morning. It's good to see all your faces. Uh, as they were singing that song, uh, I, I had a moment this week where I was reading my Bible and I was reading through a familiar passage of scripture. And how many of you know Proverbs 3? Like that's just the, that's the, place to sit, right? And, and, you know, we, we memorize like trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding, acknowledge in all your ways, acknowledge him. He directs your path. You familiar with that one? It's, it's, it's awesome. But sometimes when we have a chapter of scripture that, um, that we, we're familiar with, we forget there's other really cool stuff in that same chapter. And so I was taking my time to kind of read slowly through Proverbs three. And I came across this part that I hadn't seen before. It said that we're not to fear the sudden terror isn't that an interesting word? How often in, in your lives, I'm not preaching today, I just started to go preach mode, but I'm just gonna get, get this out. How, how often in your lives are you faced with with the suddenlies, right, the, the phone call, the news report, the sudden that, that just kinda takes your breath away? And, and it says in, the, in God's word that we're not to fear these sudden terrors, but it doesn't just leave us there with a don't do something. How many of you realize that's kind of annoying when it says like, hey, don't be afraid, right? Well, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to put your confidence in God. That's what it says. That we, our confidence is in the Lord. And I just wanna just pass that on to you this morning that regardless of what you face, regardless of what's happening around you, that your confidence is in the Lord and he's rock solid. In fact, he is the rock of our salvation. And so I wanna encourage you with that. I wanted to just share with you um, a couple of announcements. But before I get into the announcements, um, we prayed for Ukraine. We're gonna continue to pray for our world. And um, we had the opportunity either the opportunity this week to talk with some folks who are missionaries in Ukraine. And, um, and we were able, as a, as a church congregation, to send some relief finances in that direction. You'll, you'll, knows, you'll, you'll hear from different missionaries, some are um, going into safety, which is not wrong. You know, As the Lord leads them, they're taking their families to places like Poland, Romania, bordering nations, and there are others that are staying as they feel led by the Spirit to do so, to, to be a part of feeding people, housing people, and then being a part of, of getting people transported into safety. And so the contacts that we have are with Youth with a Mission in Kiev and in Chernobyl, with a T, not the C-H one, the Chernobyl. And, um, and so they have the ability to access their, their bank accounts and everything like that. So I just, I wanted to share this with you so that you know that it's, it's it's right that we pray and we continue to pray. And we also put feet to our prayer through action. And you're a congregation of action. I wanna thank you for your generosity because you give so faithfully. We are able to send $10,000 to them to be able to help them in what they do. So we're gonna continue to pray and that money will go towards food, towards shelter, and towards transportation in a really difficult time for this nation. And, um, and so, in fact, can we just stop for a moment? We'll get on with announcements, but can we just stop for a moment and, and pray specifically for this nation and for those that are called to stay there to serve in a very dangerous time that God would protect and use them? I'm gonna give you a moment just to pray uh, quietly where you're at, or you could pray out loud, doesn't matter, um, and then I'll wrap it up with a, a corporate time of prayer. God, I wanna thank you that you are are breaking chains even in this moment and that you've broken the chain of fear and Lord, we pray over our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and in the neighboring nations as there are many that are fleeing for refuge in, in places like Romania or Poland or the nations at border. Father, we ask you that the peace that passes understanding would be a guard to hearts and minds in this moment we pray for supernatural protection and we thank you for the testimonies that we hear of you doing supernatural things, testimonies of, of tanks running out of gas or of missiles not hitting their target or even exploding in the air. God, we give you glory. We know these aren't fables made up, but multiple sources are saying the same things. God, we ask you that you would continue your mighty hand, that you, God, would bring justice to this land, that, Lord, you would do what only you can do, and we stand in faith believing you that you, God, are our confidence. There are so many things in this world that produce insecurity, but you, God, are our confidence, and so we stand in faith, and we pray now, Lord, for these resources to to um, make it to them, Lord, these resources to be multiplied, that many would be able to be fed, would be able to be housed, and would be able to be, would would be transported as a result of of these resources. Multiply them, we pray. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. Well as we continue on with our announcements, um, you, we've been announcing for a while that um, we're going to launch out into a Bible study, The Armor of God, and the, the details will be up on the slide. I think it begins tomorrow. See? Thank you, Linda. I'm glad you're sitting right there. Um, Mondays uh, at, from 6 to 8 is an amazing um, amazing Bible study that really will help with the very thing that I said, that what we let into our mind, that this is our mind gate, that we need to keep it filled with truth and that's how we process the world around us. Um, uh, we also have, on a regular basis, our men's prayer group. It meets at 6 a.m. If you're into bright and early, man, it's a great time to be together. Um, we just simply read the word of God together. We, we share what, what the Lord's speaking to us and then we pray. And um, so we wanna invite all you men out to that. And then the, the third thing on my announcements is that the young adults are having a worship night and that's next Sunday. And um, Rochelle and I get to host that at our house, and so we're, we're grateful to be able to share worship with our neighborhood. We have like, you know, we're going to do it in the backyard, and everybody who borders our house is going to hear um, the goodness of Jesus. So it's going to be awesome. We love our neighbors. <laughs> <clears throat> and then um, the last and final, um, Yuli, if you would come and join me. We have a special guest that's with us today to bring an announcement, and Yuli um, serves with a Royal Family Kids Camp and she's also on staff here at a church right down the street called Refuge and Refuge, Refuge is our friend. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about Refuge that we know that the body of Christ is a part of a big family, right? And that when you go to a family gathering, there's all kinds of family there, but there's like some that you go right to that uncle or where Refuge is that for us. We're like tight and we love you guys and um, we have the opportunity to partner with um, Refuge again this year in Royal Family Kids Camp. But I wanted to give her a moment to share what the camp is and the opportunity Opportunity that might be available to you. Thanks
1: for being here. Thank you, Pastor Danny. You guys have an amazing pastor, right? Oh my goodness. He is incredible. And you guys sound incredible. I was here a few years ago when we did pick up and drop off here with the kids when we didn't have a building. Since then, the Lord has blessed us with a space. But I am so excited that you guys are being brought back in to this amazing um, mission. And I just want to read real quick the mission of the actual organization, right? Sometimes it helps to know, well, why does this organization exist? So the mission of—it's called For the Children, and it oversees the Rural Family Kids Camp program. It says, the mission is to mobilize the local church to create life-changing moments for children who have experienced relational trauma. So— Royal Family Kids Camp is a camp that serves specifically children that have been impacted by foster care. They've been in foster care, they're currently in foster care, maybe they've been adopted. I was speaking to someone today who shared that um, their siblings, or yes, their siblings, are impacted by foster care, and so just because they're adopted doesn't mean that they can't come to camp. It is so fun. The ages are from 6 to 12. And actually, in 2019, some of you guys came, and those kids are still coming. So, if some of you went and you returned again this year, you'll see them. There's one little girl specifically that stands out to some of you. If you go back, you'll remember her. She's so much taller now. She's almost as tall as me. When she came, she was like this little. So, it is just so fun to do life with these kids. We get to see them once a year and a few other times throughout the year when we do Christmas things. But Royal Family Kids Camp is an opportunity for them to have somewhat of a church community that they can revisit just once a year, right? These are people that love them. And the point of camp is not necessarily to have um, therapy for them. That's not what we're doing. We do get trained um, to be able to be proactive, not reactive to these children because they might need a different kind of care. But the whole point is for them to just be kids They come for a week to have fun, to be unconditionally loved, to have people be proactive about the emotions that they feel. They have a safe space to be themselves and to learn about who God is. We don't do... um, altar calls speaking in tongues because we want to be protective of them we are a christian based camp but we want to make sure that we are opening up the door not shoving them in it and they are children so we really are not the ones to fix them this is not a camp where we come and we save them or anything like that we are just creating a space for the kids to come and have fun and say when i was growing up i got to go to royal family kids camp somebody paid for me i didn't have to pay anything to go to a camp where they loved me they remembered my name and they told me that i mattered so if you want to go, here are the dates, June 12 through 17, 2022. Now, you're probably wondering, I know there's an application. I can register. What does that timeline look like? So the way that Brenton has laid it out for us is March will be the month where you can basically register, you can apply, you can go through that process. April will be the um, interview process. So we do um, sit with you if you want to do in person or online. Um, we'll get that figured out. And we just ask you a few questions. Um, You know, your job, what do you do? Have you accepted Christ? Where have you served? Those sorts of things. If you've been through trauma yourself and how have you processed that? Um, And we are very, very inclusive. We've had incredible people. The more the merrier, right? We want all different kinds of people to come serve all different kinds of kids. And then in May, we will have training. So if you commit to this, um, you will be committing to training. It is helpful, it is just training that helps you. handle specific situations that you might not really be expecting. Um, These children, while some of them are reactive and have a lot of emotions, they are so smart, but they will have moments where they might break down and they might not know how to process with you some of the things that they're feeling because of the stories that they've had. Like I said, our job is not there to fix them, but we do go through training that is mandatory by the state. This is why we can have this camp with church is because we've promised the state that we're going to do our part to get trained and to make sure that we go through what we need to do so that the kids are safe. Because the safety of the kids is what's most important. So March is registration. April is interviews. And then May is just a few nights. Um, It'll be on Zoom training. And then in June, 12 through 17, best week of my whole year, I promise you. I've said no to jobs before. In the past, when I said, can I just take this one week off this year? And they'd be like, I'm so sorry. I'd be like, I'm so sorry. This is not going to work out. (laughs) This is the one week that I've promised the Lord I will be available to this. So... Please come if you need any more info, you said the info booth on the outside, just find them after, Um, and then Pastor Danny has my info. If anybody needs any sort of information, I actually work at the national office, so I have a ton of information that I am so excited to share with you. One last thing I want to share is in 2019, so you guys were a part of this. Some of you guys got to go. I remember one specific woman named Lisa, who was amazing, and I was so glad she was in my cabin, but... Um, in 2019, so you were part of this, 136,320 children since 1985. That's how many children have been served through this camp. That's a lot of kids. And that's not just the US, that's other countries too. So please come be a part. We want to have you. Like he said, this church is amazing. It's so fun to be in friendship with you guys, and we hope that you can come.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Yuli.
0: Yeah, I just want to reinforce what Yuli said. And thank you, by the way, for being with us. You're, you're awesome. We're passing on the awesome. We think you're awesome. Um... <clears throat> If you have more questions or you need any information, you can contact us at the church office. Contact me. I'll stay around after we can talk about it. We're behind this camp. It's an amazing thing to bless kids, to really give them an experience that they'll never forget, that they connect with Jesus, that they connect with a God who loves them with um, with an extravagant kind of love. So thank you so much. Um, if you could now, we want to uh, give to the Lord. We're going to have our, our time to give and our offering. And there's several ways to give. You can see it up on the slide. And I'd like to pray again that God would just um, bless you as you give, and, uh, and bless the resources that he so faithfully puts in our hands to steward. Oh, Lord, there's so many things, um, so many things that are close to your heart, and we want to stay very close to your heart, that the things that we're involved with are the very things that are close to your heart. And so we pray now, God, that as we give Lord, we pray blessing over these finances and resources. We pray, Lord, that you would um, just pour out your blessing upon your people through um, their generosity. And God, as well, you'd give us the wisdom, the insight, and all that we need to be able to lead um, this expression of the local church with with integrity, And, and God, that we would know how to steward the resources you place in our hands. We're grateful, and we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.
2: You are all things And to you are all things You deserve the glory
3: We're here because we've experienced your mercy like a flood in our lives. God, we've experienced your unending love and your grace. In the truest sense of the word, all those things are exactly what the song we just sang says. They are amazing. So, Father, we come before you today. We we come with hearts of gratitude. And we say thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for what you're continuing to do in us. Thank you that just as your word says that the good work that you've begun in us, you are faithful and true to complete it. So we come before you this morning in our, in our worship, in our worship of singing, in our worship of, of learning. We ask that your word would just burst forth, that it would speak deeply to our hearts, that it would be a compass in our lives, that it would help us to navigate the, the turmoil of our world. And God, we don't go forth in fear. We ask that you would send us out boldly with the courage we need to say that God has overcome the world. There is nothing to be afraid of. Would we be bringers of hope? Would we be the proclaimers of your truth and your justice to the world that just so desperately needs it? We love you, God. We give ourselves to you today. We ask that you would send us out a little bit different than when we came in. That's what you do. You take things, and when you put your hands on them, they're they're never the same. So would you make us new? Would you renew our hearts and our minds today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you to our worship team. Would you join me in just thanking them? It's it's such a, a... Obvious thing to say, but it 's so incredible just to see different people thriving in their gifts isn 't it it 's just so cool to say, you know what God clearly gifted you in that way, and you 're using that gift and it 's not just a gift you get to use it 's a gift you get to use to bless so many people so we are very grateful for you guys Good morning, Good morning. hey we 're going to continue in our exodus series and um, you know, I, I told Pastor Danny this this week, he had asked me a few weeks ago, hey, would you um, jump into Exodus chapter 20? And I said, are you, are you sure? Because that's like a really kind gesture, because chapter 20 is awesome, and once upon a time, I didn't know what to do with the scripture about, like, uh, foreskin and sacrifice and stuff, and so I just didn't preach it and left it for him. So I just want to say thank you. He is uh, turning the other cheek, and he's blessing uh, me for doing that to him. Instead of paying it forward, he's, he's given me a gift this morning <laughs> Hey, if you're new with us, my name's Andy. It's uh, my, my pleasure and, and my privilege to bring you God's Word this morning. We're in this sermon series that uh, we've been calling The Way Forward. It's uh, our, our adventures through the entire book of Exodus so far. And as you can imagine, we're at, at chapter 20 this morning. And so we've been going for 19 or 20 weeks. Is that crazy to anyone else? 20 weeks goes by very, very quickly. And one of the things that we've been saying that's really been striking a chord with me is, is this. That God takes His people as slaves in bondage to Egypt, and he takes them and he, he pulls them out and he brings them into the wilderness, and it's, it's been striking to me to, to come to this realization that God can take his people and take them out of Egypt pretty easily. God's probably up there like, pretty easily? What are you talking about, man? But what takes 40 years is getting Egypt out of the people. And I think that's what we're seeing over and over and over, that these people have been shaped and formed in a culture of Egypt. And God doesn't want to bring them into the promised land as people that have been shaped by the culture of Egypt. He wants to reshape their hearts and their minds and their imaginations to follow just him. And so this morning we're going to come to chapter 20. As you'll remember, Moses has come to Mount Sinai. The people are at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses is going up to speak to God, and we're going to get these ten commandments. And I'm going to do my best to to go through all ten. I I think it's very important that we see them all at one single time. But I want to give you a couple things that I think are important for us as we talk about the commandments. How many of you love it when somebody commands you what to do? (laughs) Yeah. Rules, regulations, all of those sorts of words, you know what they do to us? They trigger us because we don't like that sort of thing. We, too, are shaped by a culture that says you, singular individual, are the source of everything that is true and wonderful in the world, that everything should operate for your pleasure and your well-being. And so when somebody steps in and gives you a rule or a regulation, we don't like it. So right off the bat, we have to recognize that we have a problem when we hear the word commandment. And so this is what I want to tell you before we even get started. That the foundation of the Ten Commandments is not to draw lines around us to box us in. It's actually to provide a solid base for us to live the lives that God created us to live. If we want to live the, the fulfillment of the life that God created in us to live, we should probably ask the one who created us how the operating system works, don't you think? And God is saying, this is the foundation of all Scholars call the Ten Commandments the moral law. The moral law is is reshaping the ethics and the morals of how people are supposed to operate, first vertically with God, those are the first four commandments, and then horizontally with their relationships with one another. And these become the core of who Israel understands themselves to be. The last thing I want to tell you this morning is that I want to pause It's one thing to just say this is what the commandment says and this is what it means. But I want to pause this morning briefly after every commandment. I want to talk about why. Why is it that God has told us these things? Why is it that God has told us go be shaped by this way of living your life? And I'll just let the cat out of the bag. It's because the world around us, whether we like it or not, is shaping us into certain types of people. And I think what God wants you to know preemptively, if you don't remember anything else this morning is this, that God's way of you living your life is counter to the way the world is going to try to press you into living your life. And I think as we go through uh, this morning's message, you're going to see that play out. And so if you would with me, we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're just going to start in verse 1, and and we're going to see how far we can get this morning. I promise I won't keep you past 3 p.m., because it sounds like people need to be home for dinner, so... And God spoke all these words. He's speaking to Moses and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of your slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this is incredible. This is, this is beautiful. I want, I want you to remember something. These people have just left a place that's called Egypt. It's very interactive here. So they've left the place called Egypt Egypt. And Egypt has a way of doing life. Many of you have seen Discovery Channel, and you've seen specials about Egypt. Everybody kind of familiar, more or less, with Egypt. And one of the things that comes right to my mind are these, these hieroglyphs, these hieroglyphic drawings. And what are they? They're chiseled into stone, and they are all of the gods of Egypt. And how the gods in Egypt, more or less, work is they operate way up there, They don't interact with humankind, and our job, more or less, is to figure out how to appease them so that they will give us rain and children and all the things that we desire. So the first thing God does before he tells them any commandment whatsoever is he reminds them of who he is, and this is what he says. He says, "'I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt.'" I'm the one who heard you. your crying. I'm the one who heard your pleas for mercy. I, I, I saw you, and I heard you, and I, I came down, and, and I was intimately involved in bringing you out of Egypt. This is revolutionary for the ancient world to think that a God would speak directly to a human like Moses, let alone come down and rescue a people group intimately involved in their history. And he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You may they may recall those ten plagues and all the things that happened, the Red Sea. That was me, lest you forget. And then he says in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Some of your versions might say, but me, or beside me. If you're taking notes this morning, I, I think this is kind of at the, the core of what God is getting at. It's that if we want to live free lives, lives that we were intended to live the lives that the Creator designed us to walk into, the first thing that we have to know is that will be absolutely impossible if we do not worship God. Many people have said this, but I I believe it to be true. We are made for worship. We we have a, as people will say, we have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and we will worship whether we like it or not. The question is not will we worship, it is what or who Will we worship? To worship is to proclaim that someone or something has the ability to give our lives purpose and meaning and direction. So let's talk about some of the things people like to worship. We live in the culture of the individual self everything is me, 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 me. Everything is about my pleasure. We worship self. You may uh, notice that when you walk into a Barnes & Noble bookstore, one of their best-selling sections, you guys know what it is? It's the self-help section, right? And so much of the self-help is kind of self-help pop psychology mixed in with kind of New Age mythical religion. And, and all of those things boiled down is really this, that you can find everything you need to be fulfilled and have a wonderful life inside of you. You just got to dig deep. You just got to find your true self. You just got to find your truth. Everybody familiar with this stuff? And whether we recognize it or not, we should feel like, you know what, that seems a little off. And it seems a little off because we believe as followers of Jesus that that's not where truth is found. That if we dig deep inside of ourselves and try to find our truth, what we will find is an endless pit of digging and digging and digging, and we will never find the treasure. We will worship ourselves. We will worship money. We will worship possessions. We will give ourselves over. We will say, my entire purpose is my job and my promotion. My entire direction in life is just to be a mom or a dad. And even if we go down those paths, we will not find fulfillment. Because God created us, first and foremost, to worship him. The last thing I'll say is I I believe wholeheartedly that God is preparing his people for what is to come. They've come out of a place called Egypt where there's lots of gods and goddesses to worship. This is part of the culture that they've been shaped to think and see through. And they are going into a place called Canaan. And the Canaanites are the exact same thing. They have all these gods and idols that they worship. And God says, if you want to be my unique people who live out the calling that I created you to live, the first thing you have to know is it has to be rooted in worship of me. So we're going to worship, whether it's God or not, we will worship something. We will pursue finding purpose and meaning in something because we were created for it. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. I think there's a slide that it's only in our worship of God does the foundation for the fullness of life begin. The second commandment starts in verse 4, and it says this, "'You shall not make for yourself a carved image.'" or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth below, or that is on the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." I'm so glad that we don't live in a culture where we like, carve pieces of wood and worship it, aren't you? I'm serious, aren't you? I think that in so many ways we've moved past that because that's superstitious, weird thinking. Would you agree? If you saw somebody and they were like in their front yard bowing down to like, a golden uh, statue, wouldn't you think like, that's, that's well without, outside the realm of what's acceptable in our world, would you agree? But I think what can happen when we talk about, like, idol worship is that idol worship can become subtle, and it can become overlooked in a way where we just brush past this and say, we don't do that. Moving on, what's the third commandment? We don't don't bother with that. But at its core, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is ascribing to something that's created what only belongs to the creator. It's this idea, um, there's a a famous concept in, in theology, it's called totem, T-O-T-E-M theology. It's like a totem pole. You guys familiar with that? And the idea is that we're going to take, in in the cases that I'm familiar with, we're going to take an animal, for instance. Say it's like a fox. And we're going to say, you know, the fox is is kind of a nasty little thing. It kills cute animals and stuff, but it's very smart. So let's put its face on the totem pole, and we're just going to worship the element of it that's really smart, right? Let's take the owl. The owl, too, is guilty of killing cute things. It's interesting how the animal kingdom, but they're very wise. So let's put that on the totem. And what we do is we start to stack characteristics of things and say, as a whole, let's worship this totem. Does that make sense to everyone? And if we're not careful, we subtly do that about God. We say, you know what, there's a guy that I I really like. He's very smart and intelligent. I like the way he talks. I'm going to ascribe that to God. As though God somehow could be compared to how smart and intelligent a person you listen to on the radio might be, right? And so we we do these things, and what we're doing is we're creating an idol. This is very rooted in the world of Egypt, and I think there's an element of this that God is saying to his people, you can't take something that's very culturally embedded. I, I don't want you to take something that has nothing to do with me and then try to bring it into your worship of me. It has no place. Let me tell you how to worship me. I don't want you to take what other people have said and bring it in with you. It will taint your worship. So it's a, a cultural norm that I think they've kind of brought a secular idea in with them. I would say it this way, that our attempts to um, convince ourselves that we can be fulfilled by giving ourselves over to created things other than to the creator is, ends in ruin, and I don't want to split hairs. The Bible says it will end in ruin, not just for you, but also for your children and your children's children. I don't, I don't think this is God saying, rubber stamp, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. I think what God is saying, and we all know this to be true, that the shortcomings and the sin of parents is often seen by children and accepted as true, and then they act it out. Would you agree? And it affects Generations. So I think if you want to turn the cycle, maybe you grew up in a, a family where worshiping God is not part of what you did or grew up doing. The best thing to do is to start worshiping God, to take a catalog of how, how do I worship and give myself over to things that are not God? Let's get rid of those so that, that our children see us struggling in the fight to worship God and God alone. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. We do not worship God to fit in with the world. Don't be surprised that the world doesn't get it. Don't be surprised if the world is a little confused why you would want to take a Sunday off instead of taking a promotion that requires you to work on a Sunday, right? Don't, don't be surprised if somebody raises an eyebrow and they see you in the office offering to pray for a coworker. worker that's, that's odd, right? Don't be surprised because the reason we do this is, is not to somehow be accepted or understood by the world. It's to, to be a counterculture to the world that says, listen, the world is going full speed in that direction I know a better way. His name is Jesus, and I'll, I'll show you. I'll introduce you to him. The third commandment is this. You shall not take the name of, of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How many of you had, like, a grandma that was really strong with a backhand? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Boom. Anybody? Anybody? I didn't even, like, grow up in a, a church-going religious family at all, and I even had that. And so we have this idea in our mind when we read this that really, if we're honest, it's the name of God followed by a curse word. How many of you would say, that's what I grew up, understanding the Lord's name in vain? Anybody? This is interactive here. You guys, okay, okay, we're good. Okay, that's how I grew up understanding this. But as I I begin to study and and pray and think about what is this idea of vanity and, and this idea that every commandment builds off the commandments before it. And so the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain is somehow rooted in the commandments of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, having no gods but him, and refusing to worship idols, and now not taking the Lord's name in vain. I think this is maybe what the Bible is getting at. I think to take the Lord's name in vain is to speak lowly of God. The New Testament says it this way. It says that from the state of your heart, the words of your mouth are ushered forth. That the way that your heart has been shaped to understand God, to understand yourself, to understand the world, is reflected by the words that you choose to use to describe your life. So I think to take the Lord's name in vain is simply this, is that when you worship God in a fake way, it's not real that you kind of putz around the idea of idol worship, but you don't really take account of it. When the words about God come out of your mouth, they reflect your worship that is fake and your idol worship, and and it prescribes a low view of God. For God to give his name to the Israelites, you may recall, Moses says, nobody's going to believe this burning bush thing. You guys remember this? You're going to have to give me more than that. Can I at least have your name, sir? You remember this? And the scene that unfolds is this holy, infinite scene where God says, my name is holy. It is a a great responsibility. It is a great reward for you to be the people who know my name. This is not something to be taken lightly. To say the Lord's name in vain is to say, I don't totally understand him or get him, and I don't really care. I think that's what is at the core. And so as we actually worship, as we actually set aside idols and we begin to have our hearts transformed by God, our words begin to transform into high holy words. We don't just casually talk about God in gossip or chatter. We speak of God in the ways of justice and love and mercy, in the ways that God has transformed our lives. These are the words of our mouth that takes the name of the Lord seriously. When we worship God, our hearts change and our words become godly words. I think there's a side. Let me flip the page here. kind of old school. I'm still not on the iPad game. That's not like a please buy me an iPad. I'm a printed paper kind of guy, but sometimes they get stuck. The fourth commandment. This is the final commandment that God gives to his people that is primarily about their relationship with him. And it's a transition commandment to how they are to live amongst one another. The first thing I want to point out to you is this is, uh, we can put it up on the screen, That's to remember the Sabbath day. This is so cool because the previous three commandments, they, they come in the negative. They come with an insinuation that you should probably do X, Y, or Z or else. Worship God only, right? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not worship idols. This is the first command that is given as a blessing in the positive. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." find this really remarkable. This is kind of a a rabbit trail, but you can go digging. I type this into Google. Does every culture have a seven-day week? And the truth is, not every culture, but pretty much every culture, not just right now, but basically for all of recorded time, have been on this cycle of seven-day weeks. Isn't that incredible? There is something that God put in each person, each person made in his image, that when they look at the stars even... And they're trying to figure out the, the timing of the constellations and the, the rising and the setting of the sun, the moon phases. It, it they're even, even doing math on paper. Guess what they come to? A seven-day week. It is embedded in who we are as humans. As human beings, we love rhythm and routine. Would you agree with that? How many of you have a spouse here that are like, oh, yeah, this guy gets off his routine. Talk about a grumposaurus in the morning, right? My routine is like very simple. You get out of bed, do not talk to me, don't even look at me until I have coffee, right? (laughs) That is part of who we are. We are people who are striving for routine. You ever had something where you were uprooted, maybe you were moved, maybe you got a new job, maybe all these things came together at once and you just feel like the ground underneath you is not solid? You're waiting to find your rhythm and your routine. And this is what God says, you were made for it. And because you were made for it, I I have the way that you're supposed to live into it. And it turns out that the world is going to try to press you into a rhythm and routine. Isn't that true? We have these phrases in our culture, right? I, I just imagine, like, a really buff, like, football player on Instagram, like, lifting weights, and what do they say? No days off, right? We, we got, like, you just got to grind, man. You want that promotion? Just grind it out. Grind, 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 right? We have people who walk around, and they're, like, so proud of themselves, like, I work an 80-hour work week. Like, that's not healthy, Right? I I listened to this because not long ago, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this in church, but I'm just going to do it because I'm up here, Uh, but I heard this interview with Elon Musk, you guys know who that is? And he was saying like that he has a bed in the office, like he works 16 hours per day, seven days a week, and then he sleeps in the office, and then if they need him, he just wakes up and keeps going. And people are like, "That's, that's why he's changing the world, man, and I was like, that's not good. That's not good. So this is what God says that the seventh day is the Sabbath, you're to keep it holy. And it's not because it's just a good idea. It's because at the core of the Sabbath, it's who God is. Our culture looks at this and thinks, God rested? Isn't rest weakness? Isn't it failure to get stuff done? And God says, in the character, the divine perfect character of who God is, is to rest. Now rest is not being far off and distant like, whoa, 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 don't come to me. today. Today's my rest day. The rest that God is talking about is not just a good night's sleep either. The rest that God is talking about is this withdrawing from the work of your hands and saying, This is the time given over to reflect on the good things that God has done. Let me remind you. Do you remember in Genesis when God is creating the heavens and the earth? After every single thing he creates, what does he say? It was good. God takes a moment to look at what is before him and say, That's good. And when he creates you, what does he say? very good, right? He takes a moment and then he rests. This idea of rest is like he almost steps back from it all and just marvels at what he has done. We are not called to step back and marvel at what we have done. We are called to step back, to rest on the Sabbath and marvel at the blessing that God has put in our lives, to spend quality time with family, to say, God, thank you for the blessing of family. Thank you that I needed a day to sleep in, and, and it's built right into my rhythm and my routine and my schedule to think about who you are and what you've done. This is who God is at the core. How we use our time makes us certain kinds of people. You guys know that. I am I am as guilty as the next. But we all have had this interaction where somebody we try to talk to them, and you know they're like, Looking at their watch, like trying to position their watch so they can check the time, because they're like, come on. How many of you love that guy? How many of you are that guy? Oh, sometimes, you know? Why? Because we've got ourselves in these rhythms and these routines where we're rushed and we're hurried and we're going thing to thing to thing to thing and we can't enjoy any of it. I think God is saying, slow down. If you're taking notes, you could write this To live as we were created to live. We're going to have to accept God's gift of being shaped by his timing and not the world's timing. That's not to say, like, man, 40 hours a week's not cutting it for me. I quit. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the world that we live, we can live counter to the, the shaping timing of the world and say, you know what? I, I opt out because there's a better way. The fifth commandment. I've got It's kind of a family Sunday. Some of you kids probably need to hear this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that that, uh, the Lord your God is giving to you. You might notice that this is the second positive commandment. It doesn't come with a, ooh, you better do this or else. It comes with a promise. In fact, the New Testament says this. This is the first command that comes with a promise. What is the promise? Can we put it back up? You're going to live long days in the land. Now, I I don't want to pause and go into depth in every commandment because we, we do have... Time It's part of our rhythm and routine, after all. But I, this is what God is saying. Imagine a people. Imagine a church that at the core of who they are, one of their, their markers of character is that they honor their mother and their father. Now, usually when we think this, we immediately think of, if you're a parent, you immediately think of your kids younger than you and how you can get them to honor you, right? I, I say this in all seriousness, um, a handful of years ago, I was reading through this, and I asked somebody that I really trust about this. And I had said, you know what, I grew up in a way where I want to make some choices that are a little bit different than the ones I grew up with. I want to raise a family that knows God and honors one another, and I don't know what to do. And this person said, here's the thing you should do. Instead of worrying about your kids honoring you, you should ask yourself, do you honor your own mother and father? Yikes. Yikes. Some of you are shaking your head and you're thinking my my mother and father are tough to honor. And honor is a, a it's a general word. It might be one that you need to ask God, God, I I don't even know how that's possible and maybe God will give you vision. But here's the idea. It's that God wants to shape an entire people. Imagine this. If every child honored their mother and father and every set of parents honored the grandparents and every set of grandparents honored the great-grandparents, are you seeing what I'm getting at? It would be a culture of absolute honor that, that children can't repay all of the sacrifices that their parents made, but they will repay it with giving honor, honor with their words, honor with their behavior, honor with their effort, that the things that are passed along Continue. Our whole world has a system built into it that we want to hoard honor for ourselves. You ever notice this? You guys ever watch YouTube and you see like, I I was in like college and then did another degree for a long time. You ever notice like when somebody comes up to the podium they're getting introduced, what do they do? Our next speaker has his PhD from blah, blah, blah and a master's degree from blah, blah, blah and wrote 18 books and published 18 articles and blah, 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 right? And you're like, I just want to hear what the guy has to say. It's almost like trying to preload you to be impressed. It's this self-honor, self-congratulatory, and God says there is a need and a desire for honor, but it's not to consume it yourself. It's to give it to those who deserve it. Start with your mother and father. And his promise is that people would live long in the land. Why? Because in old age, when your children are honoring you and your days are full, it means that the pandemic of loneliness doesn't exist. It means that people are there, they're checking in on you, they're caring for you, they love you, they're making sure that your well being and your old age is taken care of. So, if you want to take away, you could say, honor and gratitude across family generations bring fullness of life. The sixth commandment says this don't murder, or it actually says you shall not murder, and some of you have shalt not, but just don't kill each other, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Here's the idea, and I, I want to move quickly through the next few. The idea of murder is this idea that you don't recognize the image of God in another human being. When you kill somebody you're literally saying I don't recognize God's image of you. You are less than human to me and I could take your life. Now this is not that difficult now is it? Not murdering is not overly challenging. You could live your life, you could be an angry, terrible person and not kill anyone. That is true. But Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he says basically this, if you harbor anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Do you know why? Because anger and bitterness and jealousy towards another person is this long, slippery slope towards slowly dehumanizing them to slowly stop seeing them as made in the image of God and start seeing them as your enemy. And now you are on this long, slippery slope, says Jesus. It might not end in you actually killing them, but he says, you have killed them in your heart. So God says right from the very start, this cannot be part of the people of God because murder is rooted in stopping our ability to see God's image in others. God invites us to ask him, to see his image in everyone, even our enemies. Maybe you're having a hard time with a coworker or a family member. God is not just saying, get it together. God is inviting you to ask, God, give me your heart, give me your eyes to see this person as you do, because you know I don't. You shall not commit adultery. I'm taking a deep breath because I sort of feel like going on a mini rant, if that's okay. You shall not commit Adultery. Now, I I think our our culture has different experiences with this word, but I think at the core of this word is is a concept that we really, really need to understand. I I believe wholeheartedly that this rant is worth it. Our culture has, has slipped a fast one by us, and many of us haven't even recognized it, and this is it. It's at the root of sexuality, our culture says, is our right. It's our right to exercise our sexuality as a human being. That's what the culture teaches. And this is America. When you start encroaching on people's rights in America, things happen, right? We know our rights. We have the right to remain silent. We have the right to bear arms. You guys know your rights? And so when we hear this thinking, we think, darn right, it's our right. And we have bought this lie that sexuality is a right. And if it is a right, anybody who prohibits me from exercising that in the way that I want is in my way and needs to move out of the way. Are you following me? And so we get these perverse ideas that if, if it's good for me, then what is it to you? It's not your problem. It's, it's up to me. I choose. And we get all these crazy, wacky things. And Just turn on the news. You'll know what I'm talking about. The Bible does not talk about sexuality as a right. So often we get in these arguments, and we're engaging in argument with people, and we're on their ground instead of saying, it's just not what the Bible teaches, what the Bible teaches is that sexuality is a beautiful gift. It is not a right. It is a gift that is given to you by God. And if you choose to open it, it needs to be in the confines of what God intended. And that is marriage, which is why the commandment is adultery. It's presupposing a marriage between a man and a woman. All of these things are beginning to veer towards God shaping a community of people who Exemplify safety and health and strength as a community. We know what happens. What happens to children? We know what happens to friendships when these sorts of things begin. What God is calling people to is to recognize that this is a gift, and if you choose to exercise it, it should be in the way that God designed it. This is not condemnation. This is not guilt heaped upon you if this is maybe part of your story. This is an invitation to come under the lordship of Jesus who says there's a better way for you, that you can live a full life if you choose to. I think this is God calling all of our relationships under the umbrella of seeing people as made in the image of God. We live as people who do not seek out others for our own personal gratification, advancement, or status. The Eighth Commandment is this, that you shall not steal. It's a very interesting idea. I never thought about it this way, but I I was thinking this week. That if you're not to steal, the Bible presupposes that there is some form of private property. You guys notice that? Because if there wasn't, then why would there be stealing? The idea is that there are certain things that just don't belong to you. There's a commandment coming that's saying not only should you not steal, but you shouldn't even covet that, and we'll get there in a second. But the idea of stealing... Is, is that we, uh, when we steal from one another, we're, we're communicating to people that I'm not content with what I already have. This is not an invitation to just like mail it in and say, like, oh whatever, I don't have to achieve, I don't have to pursue, I don't have to work hard. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul says this, instead of just take, take, taking, you should work really hard with your hands so you have something to contribute as well. I think uh, the bottom line is this, is that we're to pursue integrity, and contentment with the things that we have in our lives. The next commandment: You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this is the first commandment that's kind of moved past like behavior and moved towards the words of your mouth. So let's talk about this for a second. There is a um, there's a famous Catholic story. I, I found this online and thought like, "Wow, oh, that's incredible!" So I looked it up. It turns out, I think. The majority of people who are Catholic know this story. It happened in the mid-1500s. A guy that has since become a saint, his name is St. Philip Neary. And here's the story. He was accepting a woman's confession one day, and she came to him and she said, Father, I've sinned. What sin have you committed? Or whatever Catholics say, I'm not trying to make fun of it. I just don't know. She said, I've been very guilty of being loose with my tongue. I've gossiped all over town. I've said terrible things that aren't true about other people to build myself up. and, And I have come to realize that it was totally wrong. What should I do? He says, here's your penance. I want you to take a feather pillow. And I want you to go to the top of the bell tower and rip the pillow open and just let the feathers fly. And then come see me. So she goes up and she lets the feathers fly. And they fly like feathers do she said, okay, I, I did it. Now, now what should I do? He said, I want you to go collect every single one of the feathers. And she said, well, that would be impossible. And he said, well, now you've come to full realization of what damage your sin has done. Now go ask the Lord for forgiveness. That's what bearing false witness does. The ability for somebody to work hard over years and decades to build a reputation of integrity and character, it it takes a long time, but it only takes a second to strip that from somebody. Some of you know that full well from both sides of that equation. I think our world has taught us that words don't matter, that there's take backs. I think we're actually learning in this cancel culture world that just because you delete it from Facebook doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore, right? There's this idea that we could say whatever we want. I think the internet has created this culture where behind a computer screen, I can type whatever I want. I'm uh, I'm super awesome guy, one, two, three. They don't even know who I am. I can say whatever I want, right? Our culture is teaching us that our words don't really matter. But I think what God is telling us is that as his image bearers, we are called to use our words to speak life into people and not to tear them down. The final commandment this morning is this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You might notice that this has now moved from your worship to your actions with one another to your words among one another, now to your thoughts. I guess put it this way is if you were on trial for breaking a commandment, could anyone prove that you covet anybody's anything? I think what God is doing is he's actually already creating a a system where Jesus is going to speak almost explicitly into this, that all of these commandments are great, but it goes to a heart issue. And he says the heart issue, the thing that you need to take captive, is this penchant for wanting more and more and more. You were created to want more. Did you know that? God made you in his image to want more of him. But the problem is, is that when we start filling that need for more with things that are not God, we just get in this nasty tailspin. This cycle that breeds comparison and bitterness, uh, envy, jumping to false conclusions. Maybe we're all over someone's Instagram with this face. You guys know this? (laughs) And then you meet them in real life and you can't really have a real conversation because you're already preloaded. You know what I'm talking about? Because their life looks really awesome and still frame photos with all the filters on it and yours doesn't. That's what happens. And so we end up wanting people's house. I think that's a way of saying their property. Uh, your neighbor's husband or wife, I, I think this includes lust, but I also think it means like that little thing where you're like, oh man, I wish my husband or my wife did X, Y, and Z or treated me like that. Or it, It's this cycle that just continues to snowball. Don't covet... Your neighbor's servants. In the ancient world, this is like their amenities and their ability to have free time and leisure. Their oxen and their donkeys. You may remember uh, Abraham in the Bible. This is how you say, like, they got a lot of dough in the bank. Or anything else. He says, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Don't fall prey into this. I I was reading this week, and I I think this is um, much better than I could sum it up. I I have a quote from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, if we could put that up. This is what he says. He says, as humans, we are created with a need for more. But when we fill our need with worldly things, we, and this is his quote, we substitute infinity with finite things, and our end becomes wandering indefinitely in things incapable of satisfying the heart's deepest native desire. We just wander around aimlessly, just trying to hoard things up and consume and consume and consume to fill the need for more, more, more. I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is you can consume till the end of your life and it will never be enough. We're seeing in this, this Russia situation going on that people are having their yachts taken. Have you seen this? Come to find out some people have like six yachts. Like what do you do, what do, you do with six yachts? If you own a yacht and you'd like to explain this to me, I would like to hear it. But what do you do? You just consume and you consume and consume. I had all this money. What else am I going to get? Let's get another 200-foot yacht. I don't know. Let's, you know. And you just start adding, 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 and it's never enough. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that when you invite God to be the thing you want more of, he says yes and he fills it immediately. That's our invitation to ask God for more of him. This morning's uh, scripture, um, this is where we'll wrap up this morning for the sake of time. It ends this way. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us because we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is my quick interpretation of this scripture. These people are seeing this all happen and they are terrified. And Moses says, you don't need to be afraid. You, you've seen these Ten Commandments. If you just follow them, you don't have anything to be afraid of. And still, they are fearful. Why? Because there is something in human beings that know, if I live long enough, I will break a commandment. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of funny. But the New Testament says that's on purpose, that the law was there, and the law went to great detail. We're going to move on in Exodus into more of the judicial law, like the legality of X, Y, and Z, and the ritual or worship law. All of that is there, Paul says, because when you realize that you can't do it on your own, what you do is you start thinking, is there any other way? And then the one who knows Jesus says, yes, there is actually only one way, and it is in and through Jesus. It's interesting that the New Testament says that Jesus is the mediator. The people say, we're so afraid, don't even let him talk to us. We're that afraid. You just talk to us and tell us what God says. It says, I I love this, in verse 21, it's the final verse. It says that the people stood far off and Moses drew near. I want to just leave you with a little New Testament snippet. The Bible says that we don't need Moses. We don't need a really good pastor. We don't need a a YouTube preacher that we love. We don't need a, a high holy man. We have access directly to God because of what Jesus has done. The Bible says that Jesus is our mediator. That is just to say there's no longer a bridge between us and God. We can just go straight to the source. The Bible says you can open the doors of the throne room and walk right in with boldness. Not not because you're good enough, but because of what Jesus has done. You can come right to God. Because of Jesus, you can draw near to God because he has drawn near to you. That is God's promise to you. That all of these commandments are a foundation, a moral framework for how we're supposed to live our lives. But we are not under the expectation that if you get one wrong, bummer, that's on you. We are under the impression that because of our love of God, the fruit of our lives will grow and sprout from there. And we're going to follow Jesus. And when we mess up, we're still going to go to the throne of grace and say, God, I, I haven't kept your law. And he is good and faithful to forgive. I want to pray for you. Why don't we, um, why don't we stand together? And just let this prayer be just kind of a blessing to you as you continue what I hope is uh, some form of a Sabbath day for you. God, thank you that you are the God of mercy and grace and love. Thank you that our motivation is no longer fear and trembling, but it's the motivation of wanting to love you more, to pursue you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that it has set us free. Thank you that in your word, there is everything we need to live the fullness of life that you created us to live. So would you help us to remain in your presence this week? Would you whisper to us, Would you speak to us? Would you call us out of the places in our lives that you would like us to submit to you? Would we be bold and courageous in doing it? We're so grateful that we get to walk this life of faith out with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So would we be an encouragement to one another? Would we speak highly of one another? Would we protect the community that you're creating here? We love you. We give you all things. We ask for every opportunity to share the joy and the love that's in our heart with the world around us this week. So would we go in boldness? Would we go with a a smile and a joy on our face? Would you make those things contagious to the world around us? Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.